Well, first and foremost, it is great to have you back, Wes. Thank you. It is awesome to be back. I missed the show while I was away. We missed you, and now you're like a you're like a well traveled man. I, I can be like, oh yeah, my, my my buddy Wes, he goes to Bali for vacations. Hey, you know it. <laughs> yeah, you can increase your coolness factor. Just latch right on. You're always welcome. Now, in your uh, wild world travels, Wes, have you ever th- seen anything as wild as a Commodore sixty four running slack? Oh my, no, I have not. Yep. Brent found this and sent it to me during the week, and he's like, you got to see this. This is slack running on a Commodore 64. And you got to think, like, how is that even possible? Well, a Raspberry Pi is involved with a little bit of Linux, of course. You see, the C64 has an extension port called the, quote, user port, which via an adapter can communicate over RS-232 serial. So this guy connected that user port to an RS-232 serial USB adapter connected to, well, a Raspberry Pi. But uh, the part that I like is the cable description. This is the cable that he used, and I think it's great. It was an artisanal, locally sourced, homemade cable with a user port connector on one end and a USB TTL RS-232 converter on the other. (laughs) He says the fastest he got this thing to communicate, the fastest you could use Slack, was 1,200 baud, or 150 bytes per second. That should be enough for anyone. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 257 for July 10th, 2018. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that unbelievably is already live again from Texas. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. Oh my gosh, it's good to have you back, you world-traveling suave man, you. Good to have you here. It's amazing. And and I get back and suddenly you're not here. What is going on? I know. We're like just uh we're just two podcasters passing in the night. As my plane is taking off, your plane is landing. It's how, it's been like that since my first Texas trip. So it's just kind of the way it worked out. But I'm glad, I'm glad after all that we're back together again. Someday we'll see each other again in the real world. But we have the magic of technology, so we're here anyway. <laughs> One day. You know, and that event may be barbecue that brings us together. But coming up on this week's episode of the Unplugged program, a great bunch of community news you can use, including a really popular open source app that's asking for your attention. We have a couple of Firefox fast takes that you probably need to know about. And then we'll get into the Ubuntu corner. A couple of new announcements coming out of the Ubuntu project as well as some things around them. And then holy crap, holy crap, wine is so old, but like in an awesome way. Now it's also going to get cheaper car insurance. We'll tell you about some new milestones for wine and some big changes that are coming to the project, new architectures, etc. And then later on in the show, we now have the results from the recent Gen 2 hack. We know what happened. We know what went wrong. They've posted an entire postmortem, and it's in-depth, it's detailed, and I think it's educational. So we'll cover that, we'll describe what happened, and then maybe talk about the bigger picture about Linux distributions maintaining infrastructure. Now, I will admit I may have some sysadmin bias in this particular segment, but I'm really looking forward to hearing everyone's thoughts. Like our mumble room, let's bring them in. Time-appropriate greetings, virtual lug. What's up? Hello. Hello. And uh, you may have noticed in that uh, 
in that, I don't know what you call that, 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 those series of voices there. There is one Mr. Brent in there. Brent is joining us via the Mumble Room this week. Brent, so glad to have you here as well. Hey, it's great to be with both of you this week. Absolutely. Yeah, you, we Wonderful. all of us need to get together in the studio. How fun would that be? The three of us in studio doing a show, eating some barbecue. I'm salivating already. Yeah. This needs to happen, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, didn't that happen already? Wasn't that the first experience on the show for me? That's why we know it needs to happen again, Brent. We know it works. <laughs> Every single week it should happen, I think. That'd be great. (laughs) Yeah, we'll just get this huge budget and we'll just fly you out every single week for the show. Like like, like some sort of high-end radio show or something. You know, I could stay for more than a week. There you go. Now you're thinking, yeah, we could just set you up a little room in the studio. I've got the space, you know, decent connection, decent Wi-Fi, all the things you need. I did sleep in the studio last time, if you remember. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's how our barbecues go. And if you're lucky, a little Levi comes and snuggles with you. <laughs> Man, I tell you what, that is the hardest part about traveling is that dog. I, I miss that dog already. All right. Well, let's get into the community news that you can use. Let's start with Katie and Live's significant refactoring that they're doing, that they're asking for testing. I feel like this is a really big deal because this, at least in my view, is open source's most potential um Final Cut Killer. Let's put it that way. It's it's really coming along, and they've added a couple of new features that I think are really handy, including proper slow-motion video support, massive improvements to their timeline, the ability to automatically separate clips that have both video and audio tracks, which is very handy when you're trying to remove, um, like... Um, what we have is like what we call is scratch audio on the camera. So you record scratch audio on the camera and then you record the actual source audio using a professional microphone going into a professional recorder. And it's really handy to be able to just drop the audio from the video, separate it out and then get rid of your scratch audio. So that's coming in there now. Support for generating lower resolution video in the timeline preview, which means it makes it easier to work with something like 4K video on a machine that maybe can't render 4K in real time. They're, le- they're changing the layout nice. of the keyboard. Yeah, and it's a lot of stuff and but just a bunch of other enhancements. So it's available now as an app image if you want to help them test it. And they're, they're, they're trying to get the word out there. They've been contacting a few media outlets and saying, hey, can you spread the word that we need people to test this? We really need people to test this. Time to bring back the video version of Last then, isn't it? Just kidding. <laughs> you know what's funny is when I saw this story, I'm like, "Oh, that's so nice. I'm glad that the, I'm glad that this is really improving." And there was a version of me that would have been almost hyperventilating with excitement, but you know, since since uh, we've spun down some of the video stuff, I've really taken a break from video editing. It's been easier on my body. My RSI issues have started to clear up a little bit, and uh, it's just you've been less depressed, happier, and maybe if you're lucky, by the time you come back around and are doing video again, Linux will be the best of the lot. I would be amazing because it sure is for audio production. I tell you what, it really is, and that's the thing about where I'm at with audio production is I, I enjoy it. I like it. I feel good about it on Linux. Like I want to do it on Linux. Like I don't have to force myself to do the audio production stuff on Linux. I want to do it on Linux because it's, in my opinion, the best. It's just actually a good tool set. Yes. And so that's where I would love to see video get to. Um, and part of what's really helped me switch my workflow over is also at the same time switching my workflow on the desktop over to the Plasma desktop. And so I've been following the desktop's developments pretty closely, and there's some new features that are coming to future versions of Dolphin that I think are really slick, especially if you're a Telegram user. And um, it's built around this new framework called Purpose, and it's it's 
it's got its own dedicated blog post. I'll try to put a link in the show notes if you guys want to know more about it. But the idea is it's an extensible framework to fulfill the developer's purpose while providing abstraction. Yeah, I know. Right now, they uh, really don't have much going on other than this new share menu that's coming to Dolphin. And if you've been following the weekly usability uh, posts, um, there has been some talk about this new share menu when you right-click on a file. It does a lot like you would expect it to do, say, on a mobile device. You can share it to KDE Connect. You could share it to a Bluetooth device. You could, sh- And they're collapsing some of the stuff that's in the menu into this new share menu. Um, but you could also do things like Telegram because the system will detect what applications you have installed or, or like NextCloud, another example, um, or maybe Imager or Twitter. Like there's a lot of extensions you could put in there. And then you can right-click on a file. There'll be a built-in share menu, built-in Plasma. Anything that uses that framework can get access to it. So soon, on your Linux desktop, if you're using the Plasma desktop, you could right-click on the document, select Telegram, then choose the contact just like you do on your mobile device. And uh, right now, it's in development, and they just put up a blog post answering some of the questions about, like, what about adding more clutter or uh, what about, uh, you know, accidentally sharing a file and all of that kind of stuff. He's answered all of those questions. And it's it's worth calling out, if nothing other than to talk about um, the the rapid improvement that we're seeing on the Plasma desktop, even though there's recently been some complaints about communication between developers and the visual design group. Actual Plasma itself is progressing extremely fast. And we've really now entered a flip-flop situation where generally GNOME is considered the slower, heavier, more less stable, I'll put it nicely, desktop, and Plasma's become the fast, lean, efficient desktop that has um, all these new things coming to it. Like they've, I feel like they've flip-flopped in a bit, uh, and and you really see that the Plasma desktop is moving forward fast with some of these new features. The share menu is great, and I recommend reading the link in the show notes if you're curious about the implementation. It's a, one of these small things that really, I think, draws a contrast between Plasma and Gnome Shell. Files over the years has gotten simpler. For better or for worse, it's gotten simpler and simpler. Whereas Dolphin has managed to get simpler by default, but more powerful when you need it. And that is the balance that I I find myself to prefer. They do seem to sometimes err on the side of features, but they get back to that usability balance over time. I love this kind of stuff and this kind of communication. That's part of it, Wes. You know, like this clear communication about this is why the project is doing this. This is how it's going to work. It's coming down the road. Prepare yourself. I love that kind of stuff. I think that's huge. And it really seems like Plasma team has done a lot of of slower efforts over the years that we're now seeing with solid foundations laid with some clear with some clear purpose, if I can say that. They can iterate fast, they can change things, and as long as they communicate clearly, we, we're not left in the dark. So we don't have to speculate, oh, which, you know, which feature is going to disappear next? What horrible thing are they going to add? They've thought about it. It's clear that they, you know, they're thinking about a wide range of users. So you and I might love all these features, but as you say, there's tons of ways to disable it if you're never going to use it, and it's not, it doesn't add a whole bunch of clutter for everyone. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that they're including the option to disable it. Like, oh, you don't ever just want this at all to show up? All right, you can just turn it off instead of just, no, it's baked in now. You can just use it. <laughs> I do think I have gotten really used to doing that on Android, you know, just be able to send it right to an app and have that all work after yeah. I've installed it. So I will be using this in Telegram probably from day one. 
Yeah, Telegram, Slack, um, Imager too. I mean, how handy would it be to quick screenshot, right-click, upload to Imager, although you can actually do it within Plasma's screenshot tool. But the whole point, right, is that maybe, you, maybe you've started a new image hosting platform. You're not as popular as Imager, and this can work for you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very nice. So let's talk about the AUR for a moment. We've recently had stories about a crypto miner that made it into the Snap Store. We also talked about some crypto miners that made it onto Docker Hub for quite a while. It was really pretty embarrassing. And now, almost as if we could just check them off a list, we now have a story about the Arch Linux AUR repository containing malware. Don't panic. It's already been resolved, and it's already been cleaned up. But it is interesting. It seems to be a trend we see. Now, the thing about the Arch user repository is from the very beginning, they warn you that it is user-submitted software, that you should double-check all of it. And when you follow the Arch guide, like the first time you're getting started with Arch, they have you build things from the AUR by hand. So that way you learn how the package build files work. You can see what URLs it's calling, things like that. So in Arch's defense... um, they do warn the user as much as possible. But I'm surprised this almost hasn't happened before. And there's been a full investigation now that shows that a malicious user with the nickname Exactor modified a June on June 7th an orphan package that didn't have an active maintainer, something called AcroRead. Hmm, Acrobat. I don't know, never heard of it. Uh, the changes included a curl script that downloads and runs a script from a remote site. It then installs persistent software and configures systemd to start it up from time to time. <laughs> I love it when systemd is involved. Uh, now, the two packages that there was two packages total that were uh, modified. They were both maintained uh, by the same person and modified by the same person. And the investigation reveals that the executed scripts were just doing data harvesting about your machine, your machine ID, the output of uname A, the CPU information. Uh, the Pac-Man output of information and the output of system CTL list units. The harvested information was then transferred to a paste bin document. And the AUR team discovered that the scripts contained a private API key, which shows this was probably done by an inexperienced hacker because you can track that down to somebody. Uh, but the purpose of gathering that system information remains unknown. Just, just, just doing like a system scan, you know? Isn't that funny? And using systemd2 to make sure it starts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I really do kind of wonder what, well, I mean, systemd is just so reliable, Chris, that that's a natural choice. It does definitely seem like sort of inexperienced and in that, you know, you, if you wanted to do damage, you could do a lot more damage. You could also probably get more sensitive information if that's also what you wanted. So it is kind of peculiar. And you're also right that we all, we all use helpers, or at least most of us, but to the AOR's credit, Package builds are actually pretty simple. And so if you do have the time, if you, especially if you don't use that much AUR software, it's pretty reasonable to go look at least before installing something. Just go scan the package build. It's pretty easy to see. Does this point to the real Git sources? Does this point to an HTTPS website hosted by the organization that maintains this project? That will help a lot. Yeah, especially if it's a system you're putting in production. I think there's a there's a definite room for improvement around GPG GPG key handling, though. So I, I can't remember what the package was, but sometimes you see these pinned comments at the top of the AUR that say, "Oh, just copy paste copy paste this key into your key ring, and it will all be fine." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a great point, Alex. There is some there is some room for improvement there, isn't there? Um, it was caught pretty quickly, it seems, and taken care of, and a full investigation was done. So on the other end of this, you know, it's it's pretty well handled. What are your thoughts on it, Brent? 
Well, I have to say I'm a relatively new AUR user, so um, it's amazing. You know, you, you, I call myself relatively new, but there's a surprising number of packages I'm, I'm pulling from there. Um, but I was uh, taught very early on in the process from some forums and things like that that um, actually you should really look at the package builds, and they're super simple. I've been looking at them, uh, and I did catch actually something last week that was a little bit um curious to me and so it just allows you to do a little bit of extra homework and in this case it was my lack of maybe technical knowledge and it allowed me to learn a little bit more about how it all worked um but i i really think that's essential for for everyone to be extra cautious let's put it yeah it's it really the the rule of thumb is if it's user submitted software well really hell i mean even the stuff that's quote unquote curated by Fortune 500 companies or whatever they are, you know, it still has crap in it. So it's tricky, but definitely more caution is needed when it's a user curated or user submitted, uh, quote, quote unquote app store. Uh, yeah. It's a good reminder. Yeah. All right. Let's do a couple of, uh, Firefox fast takes. Just a couple of little things to know about. Firefox for Android is entering a maintenance phase as the team is preparing to completely replace it. So if you're a user of Firefox and Android, which I have been for a little bit, uh, it's entered a maintenance phase, meaning that they're not going to give any updates for the foreseeable future except for major bug fixes and security updates will still come down. That's according to Emily Kager, the uh, mobile engineer at Mozilla. It sounds like Mozilla is working on an entirely new browser based on open source components in Android. And Android Components, quote, is the actual name of it, is a collection of Android libraries that can be used to build browsers or browser-like applications Something tells me they're probably not going to be using Gecko, though. They'll probably be using the Chromium backend stuff and WebKit. Uh, what do you think, Wes? Is that uh, is that a bit of a loss to have another? I mean, this has kind of been the way it's been going for Firefox and mobile for a long time, though. So I suppose not. I suppose it's not really a, much of a loss. I mean, in a in a historical sense, it it might be. I, I get that. You know, I mean, I've, I've used Gecko's been rendering my things for so long now on so many on a, on a number of platforms. But it does seem like this is also maybe a sign of them taking Android as more of a primary platform. I think so many people use Chrome or other browsers there. I, too, have been using Firefox and Android. And honestly, I really like it. It's one of my favorite mobile browsers. And if they can make something even better, even more tightly integrated and focused on that platform, I'm excited to see it. Yeah, you know, I started using it to sync bookmarks and passwords. Uh, but uh, for iOS users... There seems to be another solution, and I think they just launched this. You found this, Wes. It's the Firefox lockbox, and this is the password management component of Firefox broken out as a standalone mobile application. The idea, you, the I would assume, the use case idea is you have all of your websites and passwords saved on Firefox on your desktop. And then you go to your mobile device and you don't have access to any of them. So Lockbox gives you access to those passwords. It uses their backend sync. It's 256-bit encrypted, it says. And um, you sync down your usernames and passwords using this Lockbox app. And I, I was talking with Wes about this. And I'm like, Wes, what do you think the use case is for this? Which is when you pointed out for people using it, using it on their desktop. And I remembered that Noah used to do this. I don't know if you recall, but he used to use Firefox as his primary password manager for a long time. Yeah, he was looking at us kind of funny. He was like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. I, my browser has all my passwords. It's already right there. <laughs> I think he was, um, I think he was sort of uh, eventually had to replace it with uh, with a home world solution, just part in part because mobile. 
So Lockbox is only for iOS today, and they just launched it today. They may be rolling out an Android version soon, but it's kind of interesting to see where all this is going. And then one last Firefox fact for you, a little fast take here. There is a big update for you Ubuntu users running Firefox. Firefox 61 is now available today as we're recording in the repo. Now, that's a nice update, and it's even available for you LTS users, I believe. So go out there and get your upgraded to Firefox, so you'll get Firefox 61, which includes several new features. And um, it's nice to see that the LTS is getting the uh, the uh, latest versions. It is actually really nice because the latest versions are great. Now, if you do want to stay a little more up to date, I will say just downloading the tarball of Firefox and sticking it somewhere in your home door and adding that to your path also works very nicely. Yeah, that is a good way to do it, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I do on most of my platforms and uh, no failures yet. I kind of stopped getting all all uh, all worried about the version after Quantum shipped. Uh, you know, and then I kind of was like, okay, well, I got the major version once I got to 60, but it'd be nice to get to 61. It's good to see. All right, well, if that's the Firefox uh, fast takes is what I was calling them. You like that? Fast takes, Firefox fast It's so takes. fast now, right? Quantum fast. Yeah, exactly. You got it. Uh, let's do the Ubuntu corner. Speaking of Ubuntu, they launched this week the minimal Ubuntu, which is not the same thing as the minimal install. Or the server install, it's minimal Ubuntu. I don't understand why you're confused. I don't know what the problem is. Uh, it's, uh, but it's the idea is pretty slick. It's a small footprint of Ubuntu that's meant for fast virtual machine provisioning. So imagine an AWS infrastructure that has to spin up a thousand instances at once. You think I'm exaggerating. I'm not. They really, really care about the spin-up time. I heard this from an AWS engineer directly. Like, they are constantly pushing back on Canonical and Red Hat to shave down the boot time because you multiply that by a thousand in some cases. And so if you can shave down the boot time and shave down the image size, it really matters. It might not matter for us on our laptops, but it really matters for really large cloud deployments. And that's exactly what these are for. This is really... Ubuntu designed to be deployed by machines, not humans. So think of it in that context. Yeah, exactly. I'm really excited for this just because for for many cases, Ubuntu server is great, but it's still kind of stuck in the era of bare metal servers. I remember the argument when System D came out and everyone was like, well, why do we need why do we need servers to start fast? You start it once and you reboot it, maybe never. But in the in the days of clouds and, you know, functions as a service and all the different sorts of containerized options we have today, you're starting stopping immutable deployments. Everything moves very quickly. And if you can get this down in an image everywhere, it really scales. Plus, I don't know yeah. about you, but like when I'm making images for other people to use, I want to customize that. And I want to start with as lean a base as possible. I don't want to have to go in and remove or disable services that I don't need or no one knows what they do. This just starts as a super lean core, add on everything you want, do some customization, make a new AMI, and you're good to go. Yeah, especially in the context of quote-unquote serverless computing. Serverless computing, it just means they're taking care of the server. They're, they're, they're standing up an entire Linux instance and then tearing it down once the processing's done. They need that to be fast. But Brent, you're pointing out um, there's other aspects besides the speed of the boot when you minimize like this. There's other advantages. Yeah, I had a... It was I guess kind of a little bit of a question. There's a section in there that says uh, minimal security cross section comes with uh, this minimal Ubuntu. And I just wondered if anybody from the community or maybe uh, maybe Wes has any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, you know, less attack surface means it's 
by default, less um, likely to get exploited. Now, it's still something you attach to the network, right? It's still running a full Linux stack. I mean, it is Ubuntu. You can install any package you want on it. Yeah, I think that's 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 it right there. It's not you know, it's not some magic layer of security. It's just that when you install like the default Ubuntu server, there are a lot of things which are super handy and make it really easy for users to get started with that are just enabled by by default, right? So, you know, Snap is the Snap service is running, LXD might be running, but if you don't use those things, you don't need it. And unfortunately, not everyone, even some sysadmins, know enough to go, you know, how to go prune that, how to disable all the services, how to check for those things. So if you can just start from a really clean, minimal base, it's better for everyone. There's some real numbers here, too. They say that the images are less than 50% of the size of a standard Ubuntu server image, and they boot up to 40% faster than standard Ubuntu. But that doesn't mean they're necessarily the fastest, does it, 10-bit? No, I was checking Pharonix and... uh... Michael did some tests, and Clear Linux was the big winner. Minimal Ubuntu is definitely better, but Clear Linux was still four times. That is a that's a great point. You know, it's there's still other many people are still going to run Docker containers with Alpine, or if you have particular needs, right? There are there are a lot. What I think Ubuntu makes a special impact here is that you still get all of the comfort of using Ubuntu like you do on any other platform. All the things are there. You can still install devs that you need to. It'll just work. Whatever happened to Unikernels? Do you remember them? Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't heard as, I mean, they're interesting. I haven't heard very much. There's been less buzz these past two years. I don't know if that's just because uh, serverless and Lambda, etc. have taken over that space, or maybe it's just incubating in the background. Now, Badger, weren't you thinking that maybe Atomic from uh, Fedora makes this a bit less relevant? Yeah, I think, um, so startup time is one thing, and I guess I hadn't really thought about the scale that Amazon run at. Um, you see, I go around to a lot of different customer sites, and I see people with four, 500 uh, EC2 instances in just their test environment alone. It's pretty crazy. Um, and you multiply that across all the different companies across the world. The scale that Amazon are running at is... Uh, mind-boggling um but then mm-hmm. for me i think if you look at you know a, a, an atomic os has a read-only file system and so there's a lot less uh, tinkering needs to actually occur so you can almost basically boot from a known state and it's it's kind of like how apple deal with hardware right so they know exactly what's under the hood so they don't have to do a whole bunch of checks like a pc bios would or something so it's that similar sort of principle yeah yeah just just if you don't have to worry about the drive changing at all you could launch as as fast as you can initialize the hardware support you can yeah, launch that's right yeah uh, that, that's a yeah that is a good point uh, i i feel like the broader context for this too is containers because this isn't just for spinning up VMs; it's also for spinning up, uh, you know, an Ubuntu inside a container. So you can, you can start with something minimal and build your container environment around it. I, I think there's other solutions for that, but I feel like this would be a pretty good one. And because it's just an app getaway, you can get anything else loaded in there that you need, which is really convenient. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head right there, right? Like that, you don't. It may not be the best if you have particular needs, then. Maybe look elsewhere, but if you were just already yeah. using Ubuntu, it got a little bit better today. <laughs> now they just got to work on the branding because there's too many minimals at this point. Uh, and you know, it's tough when you have an OS that runs on IoT devices, it runs on cloud devices, it runs on laptops and desktops, and now apparently on floating AIs that will go up into space. Ubuntu is also running on an astronaut AI. 
It's called Simon, C-I-M-O-N, and Joey has a great write-up over at OMG Ubuntu all about it. And it's one of six experiments that was recently launched to the International Space Station as part of the ESA's International Space Station program, the Horizon Mission. Uh, it's it's not science fiction, though. It is an autonomous AI-powered assistant that can see, hear, and understand and speak with the astronauts. And it's got a touchscreen on it. When you minimize the Simon application, there's an Ubuntu desktop. It's just like right there. And you can open up files and browse the file system on this floating robot. And it's really cool. It's about uh, the size of a beach ball with one side of it flat that has an LCD screen and a somewhat freaky face, I'll be honest. Um, and I, I just, I love the concept of this. There's so many things they can use it for. You know, as we go out deep into space, it's much easier to send robots than it is humans. But the other thing you have to consider is this isn't an, um, this isn't like a, something that's going to turn on your smart lights. This can be very, very purpose built to know very, very deep knowledge about the particular experiments they're working on. Like, it's not going to answer when Walmart down the road opens up. It's not going to know that. But if you need to know the molecular structure of this rock, it's going to know that in and out and be able to display that on the screen. Right. I mean, if you think about how useful data, having a smart home with data about your house or about your car is, you take that to the next level here. Wow. Yeah. You're right about the face, though. The face is creepy, and I'm just imagining a Hal-style <laughs> moment there, and the face, you know, the the smile turns into a frown, and, oh, pod bay doys. Ah, whoops. Yeah. Yeah, uh-oh. Yeah, it gets angry all of a sudden. <laughs> all right, well, here is one of the scientists who's been working on it, explaining how this works better than I can. My name is Till Eisenberg. I'm from Friedrichshafen and the project manager of the project Simon. Simon weighs about... Five kilograms and has a diameter of 32 centimeters. He has a velocity of about one meter per second, which is rather slow, but it's quite uh, com comparable with the normal movement of a crew member. He's equipped with a display of eight inches, which was chosen because this gives the ability to put on to display a complete phase. Simon stands for Crew Interactive Mobile Companion and it's meant to be a social, interactive, uh, free-flying object who shall assist the crew during extensive tasks and to reduce stress. Simon will assist Alexander Guest during his next mission. He will assist him during two different tasks, so he will be able to provide him with the good advices during complex procedures, as well as assist him in social interaction or bi-social interaction, and will provide additional data to the science group like video data for or during complex tasks to validate the exact process. They go on too to talk about how if they're working somewhere where they have decent connectivity, they're going to still use offloaded cloud processing to help uh, with Simon's intelligence. And when they're somewhere where they don't have connectivity, which I guess I guess there is connectivity in parts of space, but when they're somewhere where they don't have connectivity, uh, it can work offline. The, the majority though right now of the AI work is taking place on IBM's Watson cloud service. And the language comprehension is being done by that, although they're working on some local language processing, but they don't talk about what technology they're using for that. And they say the earthly link may seem antiquated by comparison, but it has its upsides. Um, he can download new software 
and they can improve things in batch processing. So he can come up with solutions like offload it to the cloud, it'll chew on it, and then they'll send it back to him depending on the bandwidth, and then he can give the results to the astronauts working at the station. I know this is early days, but I will be very curious to see, you know, after six months or a year or however long this this project runs, how useful is it? Do they get real benefits? Because if so, I assume this will be the first of a long line of AI assistance in space. Yeah, the first AI assistant in space is pretty, pretty neat. Let's bring it down to Earth, though, and talk a moment about the GNOME desktop. A lot of love these days from us for Plasma. But things over in the GNOME camp are slowly but surely getting better. A lad on Twitter tweeted that we could look forward to some serious performance improvements and included a picture of a slide from Guadec, which just wrapped up the GNOME conference, and there was a lot of talk about improving the performance in GNOME. And in the slide, too, I noticed they specifically call out those jerks at Canonical for all the good work they're doing to actually help get really deep into the performance issue and solve it. So it looks like uh, the kumbaya of Canonical and GNOME continues because they, they give them a particular call out of thanks in this slide. And it seems that we may see even more performance improvement announcements soon coming from the GNOME project because they're touting them at Guadec this year, which I am very Happy to see. So don't become a Plasma user just yet, Wes. Yeah, I know, right? I, I think this is also just another good case of, you know, Ubuntu is used in so many ways. And I think it's pretty easy. Like the way I use GNOME, I, I don't care as much about the performance for 90% of them because I'm, you know, I have a web browser and I have a terminal and maybe I'm developing something and the rest doesn't matter too much. But let's say you're a video editing professional using Ubuntu on your power, powerful workstation. Suddenly that matters a lot. So I think the focus of end user deliverables that Ubuntu can bring is just going to keep these improvements coming. Well, I look forward to it. And, you know, it's a whole, it's a, it's a whole group effort now. There's so many, there's so many major distributions that are shipping GNOME that hopefully we will start to see some. That's what we've all been hoping is that when everybody kind of focuses on it, not everybody, but when so many desktops focus on it, maybe we'll get real results. That might be what we're seeing now. And it's a, it's a whole group effort, but it's really great to see, um, Canonical sticking with it. Now, um, I got to tell you, we had a story that I decided not to include, but now I kind of wish we did because it was about setting up enterprise-grade Wi-Fi. Holy smokes. Holy smokes. If if there, if anybody out there, if anybody out there has uh, solutions for like home, what am I looking for here? Like, a, like not like a, not like a DDWRT solution, but what is the latest in, in Linux solutions for Wi-Fi? What, what I, this isn't a question for the audience. Like what is the latest in, Firmware replacement on a, on a router device or even better ones you build with like a PC or something. I'd love to know. I've been living in Wi-Fi hell for about three days. Things are looking better now. I was so worried today because I'm down here at Linux Academy and today was the first of several, I think five live streams they're doing to announce all this new content that they're launching in July. And I got here on Saturday. Had a nice chill um, morning, got in here, uh, you know, around 9 a.m. Sunday morning, started setting up for Linux Action News. And I pretty quickly discovered that I was dropping packets. Oh. And it was really hard for Joe to even understand a word I was saying. I mean, harder than normal, right? You, not just because you're mispronouncing things. <laughs> yes, exactly. I... I didn't know what it was. Like, was it the, was it Wi-Fi? Was it something on the network? You know, on a Sunday, 9 a.m., 10 a.m., I'm the only one here. So it's not like it's somebody torrenting stuff. Nobody's here. There's, most of the machines aren't even here. Most of them are laptops. 
So I started going through all of these old school troubleshooting processes that I used to go through. You know, can I ping the router? Am I dropping packets here? Am I dropping packets when I go here? Can I do all these trace paths and all that kind of stuff? I uh, started like running around with a dongle and a spool of Ethernet, like trying different jacks to see if anything was live. Uh, but the folks here at Linux Academy about a year ago re, uh, refurbed the building a bit. And at that time, they deployed what's called, like a common generic term, enterprise-grade Wi-Fi. As if, as if there's like some committee that reviews and measures Wi-Fi to determine if it's enterprise grade or not, like stamps it, like like the USDA grade beef. <laughs> I assume it's one of those things where, uh, you know, that's what the vendor says and you pay enough for it that you just, that's the title you get. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's exactly what it is, is. Everybody you paid said it's enterprise grade, so therefore it is enterprise grade. I mean, that's what you tell the boss, right? And they're like, oh yeah, good work, IT. Yeah, and that is true. I tell you, that is so true. And I'm sitting here going, well, Wi-Fi is still Wi-Fi, and I'm doing VoIP, and any kind of disruption really messes with the VoIP call. And and so we did a bunch of troubleshooting. Uh, Stefan, their network engineer, he helped me out too. Um, at least I assume he's their network engineer because the man really knows his stuff. And uh, we actually still haven't tracked it down. I don't know exactly what it is. And of course, I'm the only jerk that's having an issue because I'm the only jerk trying to do a live, high-quality, high-bitrate VoIP call. Everybody else is browsing the web, doing email, and they're all on Wi-Fi because they're just, you know, on laptops. And most laptops that they they buy now don't even have uh, Ethernet ports. So everybody's on Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi network's just got all of these machines on it. So I'm like, no, I want to go Ethernet. Did you see the post on Ars Technica over the weekend about Wi-Fi? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, yes, that's the one. It was great, great read. It's like six pages long. And doesn't have a huge amount of detail. Well, it has some detail, but yeah, I've used Ubiquiti Gear at home for the last two or three years, and it's been genuinely pretty flawless. Um, you just set it and forget it, which is exactly what you want from Wi-Fi. And I have PF Sense on the front end. That's great. See, I think that's what they have here, but not the not the PF Sense on the uh, monitor at all. So, um, but Stephanie's coming out. He's going to bring a spool. We're going to wire me in a jack because there's no jacks oh, that are hot nice. because everything's on enterprise. Everything, everything's enterprise Ethernet or Wi-Fi <laughs> Ethernet. You still can't beat a cable, can you? No, no. But ironically, the solution was the really the only solution was I had to get outside the network. It's a particular challenge too because normally when I come down when I go places to do the shows, I always take the RV, and <clears throat> I'd done it so many times and it's it's kind of expensive so. I, I was starting to really question the practicalness of that. Like, really, do I need to take an RV, a 40-foot-long RV, every time I go somewhere? Like, that is too much. It is way more efficient to fly down there and just do the shows from one of their recording booths for a week. Or or more, maybe. Uh, potentially, actually, two weeks. <clears throat> so, you know, whatever I could fit in my backpack is what I brought with me. And then everything else got ordered from Amazon by Linux Academy. And it, and all of the gear that Wes and I use in our, and, and Noah use in our mobile setups, they pre-bought and had it here for me. I get everything all hooked up, got all my gear, same exact software setup, same software I used on the last trip, uh, with my XPS 13. Really, I had, thought I had it all dialed in. And I start having these issues and I start thinking, you know, if I was in the RV, I would have three cellular networks. I would have three laptops I could switch between. I have Wi-Fi I could connect to. And plus I have something, I have a booster on the top of my RV that can pick up Wi-Fi signals from two miles away. It's an, it's insane. It has, it has this like little tiny device that is just this incredible booster. So there's a lot of flexibility. Plus I can move. 
and I can just go somewhere else that has better connectivity. That has saved your butts a number of times. Yeah. And so this trip, I'm like, oh boy. I So what can I do? Because I don't have the RV. I don't have any other equipment with me and I need to get outside the network. So I went and I got a MiFi. I went and got a MiFi. I might return it in, for within 14 days. But, you know, it's just, it's another device, you know, with another, you know, another payment and all that kind of stuff. But it was what you have to do to do the show. Um, and so now, now it seems to be holding up mostly. Do you guys not have tethering over there? Because over here, I just switch my phone into a hotspot and off I go. Yeah, the issue is the room I'm in, which is in the center of a very large building. And then it's, it's, it's a thick wall with sound insulation. And so the only thing that gets signal in here is Verizon. So I had to get a Verizon MiFi. Otherwise, I would just use my, my, that's, you know, what I've done before is I just turn on tethering on my Nexus. <clears throat> but uh, that's the way it goes sometimes. Maybe can we buy like a second one of those boosters and just sort of strap it to your back? You can walk around with that <laughs> at all times. Dude, a podcasting backpack. Yeah, right? Right? Yeah. And just put like a Linux box in there so that way we can say it runs Linux. You yeah, get a little nuck sitting at the bottom. It'll be perfect. Then you're, you're going to look like the guys in uh, Silicon Valley walking around the convention. <laughs> <laughs> trying to hack everyone. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I already do. When I I have been out on the street, and if I, it's like if I'm with a couple of people, I I this has happened a few times. I think it's even happened when I've been around you, Wes. People will stop and go, "Hey, what are you guys doing? What's going on? Is there a computer convention? Is there some sort of computer right, convention right, in yeah, town?" Exactly. Uh, but uh, you just <laughs> get enough like, of us in one room, and I guess it is a computer yeah. convention. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we just look it. So yeah, it's been a bit of an interesting problem. Uh, but man, if the guys here haven't been awesome to work with trying to track it down and troubleshooting stuff and, you know, turning off all of the packet inspection to make sure if that's not it and that kind of thing. So the live stream went pretty well. It didn't disrupt the live stream much. There was a couple of dropouts because of it, but it was a little more tolerant. So that was nice. And the big launch and we had lots of people show up and watch the live stream. So that was cool. <clears throat> you can probably find it on Linux Academy's, uh, YouTube channel, if you want to check it out. I, we had a fun little bit in the beginning and I was there for the whole stream. So that was fun too. And, uh, now I'm just kind of hanging out here for a couple of days. They have one more on Thursday. I haven't booked a return flight. So I'm thinking about hanging out until the weekend. Um, and then being here for the Thursday stream too. Oh yeah, you should just a little, you know, a little week in Texas. Why not? It's nice. Plus it's like, uh, I mean, I, I just have this total nightmare vision of me flying out of town and then that's when something goes wrong with the Linux box or the OBS machine. You know, something's going to happen because I just got them all switched over. You need to protect the reputation of Linux, Chris. If there's one point to your entire <laughs> existence, this is it. Well, the thing too is like uh, the guy that's in charge here of the live stream, um, he, uh, he's a photographer and a videographer and a good one too, but he's never used OBS before. So it's a bit of a training process and all of that. So I may be here till at least then but uh, pretty happy the first one went through pretty well. And if we track down this network issue, I think the next one will be really smooth. And it's, you know, it's a process. It reminds me, when you're the one person having issues with the network, it is what you were asking for is a, is a leap of faith by the people that you were asking for their time to troubleshoot it. Right. Like, like I, I felt constantly like I had to continue to prove that really I know what I'm doing. There really is an issue here. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. when it comes to the network, it's up to you to prove that it's that it's you know it's not just your problem that it's actually a systemic network wide <laughs> yeah. problem. And of course, because network engineers are bothered all the time, right? Everyone loves to blame the network, so of course that's a natural defensive position. Plus, from what it sounds like, you know, if you're just browsing the web or doing various office related tasks, that is so different than any sort of real time video streaming protocol. So it's just a different use case too. Yeah. 
So true. And it's like way more um, intolerant of outages and, and breakups where like a web browsing session or Slack chat won't even notice a, a – I'll give you an example. So it's not that bad. I, I, I would say – so I'll, I'll ping Google DNS say 800 times. And in that 800 times, I may drop 0.5% of the packets. You know, it's really small. It's like – a very small amount, but what it equates to is about every minute or so, maybe every 30 seconds or so, there is about a second or so of my speech that's completely lost, and you can, you have no idea what I'm saying. We just had to kind of grind through LAN and code a radio the last couple of days, so I knew it had to get fixed, but tracking that down has sent me like down uh, the old Google's searching for like tools on Linux to like send bandwidth checks and like try to figure out where where I might have a lot of latency or try to figure out where something's dropping packets like it's it's been a, it's kind of been a fun adventure again and getting to talk to lingo to the network guy talking to him about drop packets and uh going to the patch panel huh. and seeing if I can't uh, patch in my ethernet to the switch you're back on the front <laughs> lines <laughs> the whole lingo's been fun all right let's keep going though uh a lot of you at some point have tried to get something working with wine. And maybe you were successful, maybe you weren't. <laughs> but the 4th of July marked wine's 25th friggin' birthday. 25 years since the first stable, not a Windows emulator. The first year brought the all-important support for Microsoft Solitaire. And by 1996, the wine developers managed to get Word and Excel to run. It however be another 12 years before the, before the software was declared stable. Version 1.0 was released in 2008, and in the intervening years, the wine team bounced around to several different licensing models for code, starting with BSD style, before eventually landing on a limited GPL, followed by a number of flame wars that, ex that lasted for a long time, which you can still find archives of. As Wine slogged its way towards its first stable release, a brief period of commercial support from Corel propped up for a bit. That eventually faded away when the Canadian company departed from it all in 2001 to focus on its slow decline. Lindos came around, which promised to offer easy Windows applications while switching over to Linux. Microsoft noticed that uh, the name was close to Windows, took issue with that, and started the process of suing them. They went to court in 2002, Lindos lost, but Microsoft did something interesting. They opted for a retrial and ended up paying Lindos $20 million to purchase the trademark. And then Lindos was renamed to Linspire, which has actually just recently come back to life when it launched under new ownership earlier this year. I did a review of their uh, release, uh, one release ago. You may remember Transgaming got in the mix for a while. And Transgaming did something interesting. They really got a fork of wine that focused on DirectX. And that ended up kind of really pushing forward wine as a project in the direction of DirectX, which has been huge for wine. And as development has continued, they've just recently released 3.11, which is stable. Uh, yesterday, they released 3.14 testing, or I'm sorry, 3.12 testing. And uh, they have also big news from WineConf. They're beginning progress on ARM support. What? For wine. Yeah. 
that's it's it's like using I don't I mean this is this is really something, but this is actually what Microsoft is doing too. It's using x86 on ARM emulation to run 32-bit and 64-bit binaries on ARM. So I don't even not only do I not need to actually run that operating system, I don't even need that architecture. What a world. Yeah, that is hilarious. In fact, it really makes me just respect Wine even more. It may be slow, uh, but as ARM CPUs get faster, it may, you never know. Also, it looks like there has been some solid progress on Wine on the Tegra-based Shield, which uh, is running Android as well. On the uh, NVIDIA Shield running Android, they showed Notepad++ and Age of Empires running under Wine on Android on the NVIDIA Shield, which I love the NVIDIA Shield. It's been pretty great. And they also talk about Vulcan support and whatnot. We'll have a link in the show notes if you guys want to read up about that. And um, one other little note in there, and I've, I've been a longtime advocate of uh, Crossover Office. They mentioned that Cross or Code Weavers is still, for a long time now, I believe, employing about 50% of all of the Wine developers. Wow. It's a big deal. Yeah, and I, I just noticed they had a new version out that I haven't bought yet that I was kind of on the fence because I don't really need it anymore, but I, I think I'm going to do it. I mean, it's almost been worth it just to support this, right? Like, yeah. This, this is I, yeah. awesome. You know, I've talked, to, I've talked to Jeremy, their CEO, a long time ago. I had a lot of respect for him when I talked to him, and then when I saw that now for a long time they've been employing over not only do they employ 50% of the wine developers – but then, you know, they kick that stuff upstream too. It's not like they're, they're like, they're not like locking it behind some sort of proprietary relicense and then you have to buy it to get it. They're still kicking that stuff upstream. They're, they're just so confident in their product that they feel like they can sell it too. And, and they're, they're just, it's a great UI that sits on top of wine that if you need business grade wine that is really easy to walk through, it has specific profiles for each application, it sets up bottles so that way each wine configuration doesn't disrupt the other. Uh, or you can install multiple applications in a single bottle. And it has step-through wizards that will pull down installers off the internet if they're out there. It's great. And uh, I really think the Code Weavers is a solid company. So I think after the show, I'm going to go buy myself a copy of Crossover Office. I think it's, I think it's worth it. And uh, man, more power to the wine projects. 25 years in. We, not, we might not be running all of the Windows apps we thought we would <laughs> 25 years into it. Maybe not. But it's still pretty cool what they're pulling off. All right. We have to keep going because I want to get to the Gen 2 stuff and we're, uh, we've been catching up. So, uh, we've taken a little bit extra time here, but it's just good. To, it's just good to chat. Now it's, you know, it's like the old shows back together again. It's just so much it's fun. It's beautiful. Let's talk about Ting though. Let's talk about Ting. Go to linux.ting.com. This is, boy, do I miss having my multiple Ting access points. This is how I do it because I have a phone on Ting and I have two MiFi devices, a CDMA device. And a GSM device. The reason why I can afford to do that is not because I'm uh, some big uh, baller here. It's because it's $6 a month for the line and then just my usage on top of that. That's a pretty understandable business expense for what I do. $6 a month. And if I don't use them, I don't pay. Just pay for the line. That's it. That's easy. It's really simple. And that's why the average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month. It's a fair price for however much you talk, text, and data you use. And when you go to linux.ting.com, they'll take $25 off a device if you want to get one from Ting directly. If you bring one, and remember, it's CDMA and GSM. So if you want to bring a device, and there's a lot that are supported, just check their BYOD page. They'll give you $25 in service credit, which will probably cover more than your first month potentially. They have a fantastic control panel where you can see your usage at a glance and take complete control. You can set alerts. You can turn services off. You can activate devices through their website. And if you ever get stuck, they just 
really have great customer service, the best customer service in the industry. And that's something that Ting can focus on in a really particular kind of way. So not only do they have great prices, not only do they have a great device device selection, but they make flexible usage like the kind that I use where I have one phone and then two different MiFi's possible. It means that when I'm trying to do a show, I can switch between those devices just by changing my Wi-Fi network on my laptop. I love it. They also have a great blog. They just did a tiny home post a little bit ago, which uh, I'm partial to, being that I live in one. And it's uh, pretty cool. They're, they're really, they really get this stuff. And that's what I love about Ting. And I'd love you to get some Ting. So go to linux.ting.com and check them out. They're a great service. Also, thanks to Linux Academy for sponsoring this episode of the Unplugged program. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. You go there, you sign up for a free seven-day trial, and you support the show. It's a platform to learn more about Linux, anything that runs Linux or that Linux runs on top of. And today, they just launched new Azure courseware, some Linux Essentials courseware, and, man, Wes, this thing, for t- it, it's a perfect courseware for the TechSnap audience. It's a full deep dive into continuous integration and deployment, and... On top of that, when you're all done with the courseware, you actually like set up a whole system. Like you really go through and implement every aspect of it. And they've broken it out into different areas. And the thing that I, I learned today that I didn't know before is, so say they, say they've itemized continuous integration and deployment courseware into like eight major sections. You could, if you just needed to, um, to, to like brush up on the Kubernetes aspect, you could jump right to step six. It will, it will fill in all of the required stuff and build the server infrastructure that you would have had wow. to go through to get there just so you can deep dive on that single topic, take it and, and learn more. That is the difference with when you use Linux Academy, right? Like who, who else has thought about this this seriously? They're trying to do so many different things that they, they just can't have this level of polish and attention to detail. And if you want to get that, you know, you want to get the next promotion, you really want to prove that you've learned something. I can think of nowhere better. That's right. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplug. They're going to have another live stream on Thursday, July 12th at 1030 Chicago time. That's central. And uh, the word on the street, although I haven't seen the deets, but the word on the street is they have a bunch of Red Hat related announcements on the Thursday show. So check that out. Uh, and they're also hiring. I, uh, I wanted to make a little mention of this. They are looking for a full stack node developer. If that's something that you might be interested in, they also are looking for a senior Ruby developer as well as a customer support manager, Ruby on rails developer and a Microsoft Azure training architect. Now that's a lot of positions uh, so, uh, I, <laughs> I would say, uh, <laughs> there's an email address I gave out last week. Um, and I think that's the same one. I don't remember what it was. I'm sorry. I, I can't recall. Brent, do you happen to remember randomly what email address I randomly said last week in the show? <laughs> I'm sorry. I have no I idea. If, no, I can't recall either. But if anybody in the chat room knows either, there, uh, maybe put it in there. Uh, cause there is a lot of, uh, positions here and it's a really cool company. I've been down there hanging out with them for a while and, uh, I, I totally think that if if you are in this area and you listen to the show, some of these actually um, all of the ones I just listed, except for the customer support manager, are all telecommute jobs. So you don't even have to be in Texas; you can be wherever you're at. That's pretty awesome. So check it out. Go to linuxacademy.com/unplugged to get the deal. And you know what? Do this if you want to look. If you want to apply for the positions, I don't have this. I have a special email address that's set up just for the Jupiter Broadcasting audience. So you kind of get the hotline treatment. So if you really are interested, it may be worth listening to the sponsor section of last week's episode. Uh, but otherwise, I'll give you a little hot tip: linuxacademy.workable.com. I have them all listed there. 
linuxacademy.workable.com. I, I think uh, I think if you're a listener of this show, that might put you ahead of the list. So go check that out. And if you really want the the, the, the like the fast line, go listen to last week's episode and grab the email address. Um, and then maybe let, remind me what it was. Also, a big thank you to DigitalOcean, do.co slash unplugged. Go there to get a $100 credit at DigitalOcean when you sign up. That's You got to use that URL, though, to get that, do.co slash unplugged. You can build applications super fast on DigitalOcean's crazy quick infrastructure. Enterprise-grade SSDs, 40 gigabit connections coming into the hypervisors. Of course, they're running Linux, KVM to virtualize it all, and they have industry-leading price-to-performance, predictable costs and billing, and I love these optimized compute types. While you were out west, we set up a PeerTube instance on a DigitalOcean droplet using their super crazy fast high-end Xeon CPUs where you get two dedicated... Oh! So cool, Wes. You know, because I've done these, I've been Coded these exact videos many times, so I really get into the sense of the speed uh, up on DigitalOcean, and it's so nice. It's just right there. They also have these mix and match droplets now, where you can set the different, uh, like uh, maybe you want more RAM, or you can say, ah, you know what, I just need to put it all in SSD as well as block storage. It's so slick, and the whole thing is easy to manage with their fantastic dashboard and their easy to use API. If you just want to do it via a script or Use your favorite language. It's really easy to get started. And they got great documentation, data centers all over the world. This is the bar. You understand, right? DigitalOcean is the bar that everybody else in this game is trying to catch up to. The problem is, when you're ahead, you just got to stay hungry and you can stay competitive. And that's exactly what DigitalOcean's done. Now they're offering $100 credits to try it out. That's insane. Take advantage of that before they stop doing it because that's insane. It's so great. Dio. .co slash unplugged. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Unplugged program, do.co slash unplugged. All right, well, last week we talked about Gen 2's GitHub repo getting owned. It wasn't a massive, massive blunder because they weren't really anything more than mirrors. But now it turns out that it was a bit of a rookie mistake. And I say that with love, much respect to some of the very, very technical people over in the Gen 2 community. In fact, um, yeah, there's some people in the security industry that only use Gentoo because of some of the people involved with the project. So I say this with no disparity to the people involved with Gentoo, but it helps me make a larger point. And that is, after looking through this and thinking about some of the other recent distro snafus, things like expiring SSL certifications, project leaders randomly quitting, um, leaving nobody with access to any of the infrastructure, void, <clears throat> uh, there's just been example after example after example this year of projects getting this stuff wrong. And in the case of Gen 2, they just owned up to it on their own wiki page. They say the attacker gained access to a password of an organization administrator. Evidence suggested a password schemes was used to disclose on one site made it easy to guess the password for unrelated web pages, i.e. using the same password on multiple websites. The wiki page also reveals that the project got lucky. The attack was loud. Removing all of the developers caused everyone to get emailed. If they had been more careful and more selective, like figured out somebody that hadn't been active for a while and just removed them and then got in, it would have taken much longer for the Gentoo project to notice. But the credentials were taken and they did a noisy attack where they did something that notified all of the developers and so it alerted them to it. And those are the things that really kind of, that was the thing that saved them. But the thing that caused the issue, 
is is a shared password as well as GitHub failing to block access to repositories via Git, resulting in malicious commits being extremely accessible. Um, so Gentoo had to force push over as soon as these things were discovered. Um, and credential rev- revoking procedures were incomplete for them. And they also didn't have a backup copy of the uh, Gentoo GitHub organization details. So that made it particularly hard. And the systemd repo turned out not to be mirrored. It was stored directly on GitHub. So there was a couple of things, oh, as well as some communication snafus. But my, my core point that I'm trying to make is this is clearly not the stuff that distros are super strong at, as it probably shouldn't be. You know, they're, they're developers, they're maintainers, they're organizers, but they're not necessarily sysadmins, or maybe some of them are, but that isn't what they're spending their time doing. And I, I'm not trying to make a case for putting everything in the cloud here, Wes, but I, do you kind of follow my logic? Like, I, I kind of come from the school of thought that developers should develop software and sysadmins should manage servers. And recently, the GNOME Foundation just launched new positions specifically to take off the server administrative burden from the developers and people in the foundation. What's the compromise here? Because obviously, projects don't have unlimited budgets. They can't hire people full-time to do this. And there's only so many people to do the work, but yet there's obviously a certain amount of neglect that goes when you have too many hats on. What's the solution for this? Solve it, Wes. Uh, Yeah, I'll solve the whole thing and maybe world peace while I'm at it. I do think you're right. Like when we talk about like the split between developers and admins, it's not about even skill sets or anything like that. It's really what you're saying. Too many hats. When you have too many jobs and you're thinking about too much and too many responsibilities, you get sloppy. You know, I'm sure the people involved here, they probably even knew somewhere in the back of their mind that this wasn't the best password policy. And you know what? I'll fix it next weekend when I, you know, I finally have an ounce of time. I'll sit down and I'll get this right and I'll finally install that password manager that I've been meaning to. But that's never going to work. And so whether you're a developer or anything else, you really do need people that that your job is maintaining infrastructure. And it's not sexy, and it might not even be fun, especially when, as you say, right, a lot of these people, these are volunteers, you're trying to contribute to open source for the benefit of everyone, and you're excited about, you know, scratching the itch or improving the awesomeness of the build system or whatever else it is you're interested in. And if you try to take on too many things, it's, it's just going to fail. So if you can find people who are willing to, you know, be humble and just say like, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to administer. I'm going to be an administrator. I'm going to be an overseer. I'm just going to make sure that all the central parts that no one else thinks of, and it just has to run in the background will actually work. And ideally, if you could have some sort of funding to make sure that happened, because that's probably especially hard to find volunteers for, that would be even better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brent, what do you think of the idea of the free and open source software community coming together with essentially like an open best practices, like a comprehensive best practices that many, many, many projects could contribute to? What about something like that? Yeah, it seems to me like this, these are the types of problems that would exist with almost any project, right? So um, I, I think because we have such strong community, even if you're making quasi competitive products, everyone needs this infrastructure to to make their work happen, right? So what if we can maybe all get together and um, create some kind of, you know, this might be a dream, but some kind of best practices, I don't know if it's a document or some kind of, uh, maybe it's a conference or something where um, everybody can just be up to date on this and some of the developers can maybe lean on some of the projects who are a bit more expert 
or what about mm. maybe what about some sort of donated auditing time, right? Where you could get in security up, uh, experts to go into an organization and do periodic assessments nice. just to say like, hey, where where are you at? What can you improve? Yeah, you would think there would be people in the community that have that particular skill set that could that could be a way they contribute, but there would need to be some structure around it. Um, because otherwise you could get people just banging on doors they shouldn't. And Eric, you think maybe I'm just a DevOps hater? You say DevOps aims to solve this. I say DevOps is the problem. DevOps is, is a philosophy, first and foremost. It's not a position. It's not um, It's not supposed to be clickbaity. It's, it's a philosophy. It's a way of doing work. It's with, with the way that uh, the, the founding team folks um it was just a bunch of people that were at a conference that were sitting down talking over over drinks and basically came up with this entire philosophy um it's it's a way of doing work you you break things down into one or two week sprints it you you take tasks one at a time you you sit down with the developers with the security people with the network people with the business with the systems administrators everybody sits down at a table and prioritizes work and um, what, what can I get done this week? What needs to get pushed to next week? And that's, that's where a lot of these tool sets have, have come in. This, the CI CD continuous integration, continuous deployment type of, of an approach comes from this, this DevOps philosophy. So if you've got all of your code for your infrastructure, for your network, for your applications in a GitLab instance, and that's managed by, uh, that's managed by a tool like Jenkins that will automatically set up new builds that talks to a tool like SaltStack that automatically provisions and monitors your infrastructure to make sure that, well, the server crashed, so I'm going to rebuild another one and tell the load balancer to point to this IP address instead of the, the, the bad IP address. It's, it's, it's a philosophy, and it's, it only works well as the people that are implementing that philosophy. Yeah, and it does seem like the tools are getting better. They're getting more complicated too, but it seems like the tools around this, what has been a philosophy for years now, are actually starting to catch up with the philosophy. Would you agree with that, Wes? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really like anything else. I think when you can have better communication, better communication around shared goals in particular, and work, you know, have stakeholders working closer together, that's a benefit. Now, it's not a silver bullet, right? So, Anytime you have more things to do than you actually have manpower or time to do, you're trying to do too much, you'll still face yep, the same yep. problems. Yeah, uh, I like that you got the word stakeholders that worked in there. That's uh, that's well done. Now, Brent has an idea. Maybe we just simplify this. Uh, something a little easier than a comprehensive guide, right, Brent? Yeah, I remember, um, I wish I could remember what it was called. And maybe someone in the community can uh, help me out on this. But uh, I remember Noah talking, it might have been like even six weeks ago on Ask Noah about um, exactly this, a, a type of checklist that you could look at your own systems and uh, and see if they were secure with basically, um, you, you know, you didn't have to be creative to come up with the checklist. It was right there and it was uh, yeah. being distributed by one of the organizations. I forget who what it was. Is A checklist isn't a bad way to go, even if it was something that uh, was sort of generic that, you know, you could you could at least say we followed this community checklist. I feel like there is something here. Yeah, I mean, a checklist is good. I think you need, a checklist is helpful. It's a start, right? But you still do need that person who has enough time and focus and skill to run through the checklist and know which ones are yeah. actually checked or not. Yeah, that's, that is a really fair point. And and maybe the checklist is a little bit too surface. You know, you need to understand what's happening below the checklist. Yeah, and that's that is sometimes what I I worry is happening. And this is just me being a curmudgeon. Is 
we have what DevOps to me really is, is it's getting, it's getting software developers more empowered to just deploy things that they need to do their job and not have to sit around and wait for the sysadmins to set the system up. And then this, this tedious back and forth where something isn't configured quite right. And the, you know, the sysadmin has no idea how the software works and the software developer has no idea what the sysadmin's doing. And the whole momentum there really caught, and just the, I guess the, the, another way to put that is, the demands to speed up software development have sort of put us down this path where developers are deploying infrastructure. And in the it, when I started in the IT industry, those two lines were never crossed. And they generally didn't get along super well either. Either sides of the camp were always grousing about the other side of the camp. So it wasn't an ideal solution. And Linux really is an operating system designed for system administrators. It really is. If you think about it, you have to be root to install software. Well, who's root? The system administrator. And if you think about the repo, what is the repo? The repo is an all-knowing person who has blessed this package as being possible to install on your system. That's the mindset of a sysadmin. And snaps and Docker and app image and flat packs and DevOps are all about collapsing that resistance down to the developer can publish and the user can install it. And sometimes the user is the developer. And that that mind shift has been good for the pace of software development and it's led to things like incredible cloud infrastructure and things like uh, AWS Lambda and DigitalOcean one-click deployments, which I use the hell out of. So it's not all negative, but my core issue has always been as we go down this path is you become less and less of an expert. You are required to be less and less of an expert to set up really complicated systems. Whereas in the past, your level of knowledge basically had to match the level of complication of those systems. It was a one-for-one -one thing. To get that sucker working, you knew exactly how it worked, in and out, intimately. That is no longer the case. There is now a massive gap between knowledge and complexity. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it does lead us down this path where you can over-deploy an infrastructure, you can build yourself a kingdom that traps you, and then it's a lot to manage. You've got multiple people trying to get to get to stuff. You start sharing passwords. You're using three different things to coordinate the team's communication. Nothing is super solid because there's not one really uptight person who is worrying about all of that stuff constantly, saying, we need to be doing this, we need to be fixing this. And if you don't have a team or a person or whatever to do that and you leave it up to just the developers or the distributions or the projects who are busy doing other things to maintain it, I feel like this is going to be a systemic issue that constantly plagues busy, overtaxed open source projects and could even over time lead to a bit of a reputation as amateur and that a lot of these projects don't have their shit together and that they constantly are having issues. I mean, we can, we, going all the way back to, to, to mint breaches. I mean, we can just sit here and rattle off mistake after mistake after mistake that is really just boiled down to, oops, we missed that or we didn't really know or something changed that we weren't aware of or the project lead who had all the access left. And every time you just go, you smack your head and you go, God, that's amateur hour. It's a gray area in many ways because you're right. We have, we have so many tools. And in many ways, that's good because a lot of times if they're done well, it means it's easier to get it right. Right. So if you're on Amazon and you're deploying a load balancer, 
it will handle all, you know, you if you have SSL on there and you have it provision it, you know, it will have the best ciphers. They take care of it. It gets upgraded automatically. So that's nice. You don't have to go learn the horrible world of SSL. At the same time, you're right that if it's so easy to build yourself this giant complicated mountain and no one really understands how it works, that will fall down. And that's where I think maybe sometimes it's a little bit of a fallacy that just because you've, you know, you've quote unquote gone DevOps or, or whatever else, that doesn't mean you can't have individual experts and you can't have people that happen to know more about a part of the system than others or are specific domain experts. And at the same time, it reminds me of, of sort of unit tests for software development and all the, all the safeguards and everything else. There's really no substitute for attention to detail and caring about the software or systems that you're crafting. Yeah. Well, there you have it. I'm just putting it out there that would be great if somehow we could really come together on, even if it was a checklist, that'd be fine. That'd be a great starting point or a, a, a guide, a wiki of best practices. The problem would be anything like this ever getting traction and it would take a lot of buy off. But uh, it really seems like if we could give these folks that are too busy to, I mean, think if you have the mindset ever when you're managing your infrastructure that, oh man, this is this tedious thing that I just have to get done so that way we can do X. You're probably not the person that should be managing that. You should be the person that's looking forward to setting that stuff up so that way you can do X. And if you're, if you're in that position, you're like, oh man, this thing again. All right. Well, we got to go get that thing set up on GitHub so we can just do this, please. So that way we can get back to work. If that's how you feel about it, it's <clears throat> probably a sign that your team needs somebody else doing that work. And so if we could make that person's job, because that's not always an option, if we can make that person's job and life a little bit easier, with a checklist or a guide or some sort of community resource that says these are at least the minimums that you should be doing. I think that would be extremely valuable. So I hope we see it. Who knows? Um, you never know. You never, you never know. Maybe what, maybe I'll, maybe I'll travel around in my RV and I'll advocate it on every Linux event I go and one day something will happen. Maybe. In the meantime, where should folks get more West Payne in their life? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at West Payne or stay tuned for some exciting new TechSnap episodes coming to a podcast near you. Ooh, ooh techsnap.systems slash subscribe. Brent, do you have anywhere you'd like to send the good folks? Any, uh, any, any tips, tricks to get more Brent in their life? Yeah, sure. You can either come to Northern Ontario and I'll tour you around, or you can uh, hit me up on Twitter, <laughs> Brent, uh, at Brent Gerva, B-R-E-N-T-G-E-R-V-A-I-S, or BrentGerva.com. That's great. That's great. Now I know if I ever go there, I'm going to contact you. If I ever go back to New York City, I'm going to contact XMN. And if I ever go down to Seattle, I contact Wes. I am really covered now, at least on the major coast. You can uh, follow me. I'm at Chris LES. The whole network is at Jupiter Signal. Links to build the community. <laughs> well, you know what? Really, if you think about it, we have a very wide ranging network of experts, probably in every major city. So anywhere we want to go, <clears throat> there's probably going to be somebody there. If you'd like to join us uh, or get links to anything we talked about, we have all that stuff detailed at linuxunplugged.com linuxunplugged.com slash 257. The live show is at jblive.tv on a Tuesday. And I may be still down in Texas by the time you hear us again. I just don't know. But thanks so much for joining us. And we will see you right back here next week.
thank you guys. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, Mumble Room. You guys were great as always. Stars, as always, that Mumble Room. Brent, uh, the mumble worked pretty good. You sounded pretty good during the whole show, too, so I'm glad that worked. That's kind of unbelievable. It's great. We kind of pulled that together last minute, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Eric, it's good to hear that uh, that whatever was wrong with your mixer last week, the highs are uh, <laughs> a little better this week. <laughs> yeah, that was that uh, was fun to find out after the fact. Yep. Yeah, the kids the kids love the knobs on the mixer, man. They love the knobs on the mixer. Ooh, look at that, Daddy. Boom. Um, security amateur hour coming in by architect right now. The traveling lup roadshow. We need uptights. That's funny. Ah, uh, do you have any uh, hot travel tips to leave us with, Wes, before we part? Um, buy a Kindle and spend your whole time using it. Oh, did you get a Kindle? I did. I don't know yeah. how I didn't have one already in that I'm a, I'm a pretty big reader. I've just been stubborn and sticking to the old dead tree matter. But it's an Amazon product. Yeah, I was conflicted, but uh, boy, I was glad I had it on that 12-hour flight. I got a Switch for this trip. Oh, really? Oh, nice. Yep. Yep, I got Odyssey and Mario Kart. Man, those games at 60 bucks a pop, though, that is outrageous. Uh, so I'm going to wait a little bit for the others, but so much fun. Much better than I expected. The, it has a kickstand on the back, so you can you can take the handles off. And uh, it's just so much fun to play with the kids. It has been it has been great. It is better than expected. And the fact that it uses USB-C to charge is an Love absolute it. perk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll get some, uh, I'll, I'll have some switch time uh, while I'm on this trip. So I'll have, uh, by the time I get back, I'll probably have a pretty good take on the device and might be ready to try to put Linux on it. <laughs> oh, do it. Yes. 